0: When I did this with Lockheed around the Navy sub-fleet at one point, they said, I don't see how you're going to do this. And I said, I don't either, but I know somebody's got to do it, and I don't know anybody better to get their head around it than you all. And that's inarguable. It's got to happen, and if anybody's going to do it, it's you. And so, let's go.
1: You have the desire to create financial freedom, but you also want to make a powerful, positive impact on the world. This podcast exists to tell the inspiring stories of men and women who have achieved both people who do well
0: and do good. Discover proof that individuals have the ability to make a massive impact. Brought to you by your host, Dorothy Eelson.
1: Hey, everyone. My name is Dorothy. I'm your host, and I am so excited to welcome you here for another episode of Do Well and Do Good. Our guest today is none other than Scott Spann, and Scott's specialty is solving impossible problems. Now, what does that mean? See, he works with global leaders to create systemic solutions to complex business and social issues. He draws on his careers as an environmentalist and trauma psychotherapist, his experience with business leaders trying to do the right thing in complex, competitive situations, as well as systems thinking and the chaos complexity and network theory, which you'll hear Scott explain in this interview. Scott draws inspiration from his time in nature as a cowboy, a hunter, and a sailor, and by his lifelong training as an internationally competitive athlete. I've got to say, Scott is one of the most positive and uplifting people that I know, and I'm so excited for you to hear our conversation. So without further ado, here's Scott. Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm really excited to have you.
0: Oh, I'm delighted to be here.
1: Well, I'd love to kick it off by hearing what you are most pumped about in your life right now.
0: What I'm most pumped about is the the opportunity inside the seeming, I don't know, crisis, chaos, upset that's arising right now. The thing that really excites me about it is the only way out of some of the messes we've created, whether they're environmental messes or social messes or political or economic, really is for all of us to make it out. (laughs) It's not like we can continue to polarize or fracture or blame or point. We have to solve what's going on in physical reality. And we have to solve it based not on our ideologies, but on how does reality actually work? The reality of what it means to be human, the reality of what it means to be inside of complex systems. Uh, For far too long, too many of the executives I've worked with and too many of the organizations I've worked with have ideologies trying to enforce upon reality, and reality doesn't do that very well.
1: Well, I would love to dive into, you know, what that process looks like, you know, that you work through for organizations. But first, you know, I know that you've had a really diverse set of experiences that you now leverage to the benefit of your clients. So, could you take us through kind of what your career path has looked like at a high level that led to you founding Innate Strategies?
0: Well, diverse is a really kind way to put it, Dorothy. Cuz it wasn't like I set out and said, "Okay, I need to accumulate these experiences in order to do this thing." It was really much like my work, the result was emergent. It arose out of the mix of what was available. So, you know, quickly, masters in accounting, Arthur Anderson, and got recruited by the Nature Conservancy to set up the Texas offices, ran that for four years, took Lady Bird Johnson canoeing on the Guadalupe, had a board member give me an airplane to fly around the stadium, threw myself around, bought 70,000 acres of land, worth about $20 million, and then burned out. <laughs> and so I stopped doing that. Uh, and then I did a sabbatical as a professional martial artist and trained six, eight hours a day, six days a week, taught people. And then my wife at the time got pregnant with our second child. So I became assistant analyst for a computer company because I had an IT background in college. And uh, that led to consult the vice president for operations, the number two in charge of a nationwide consulting company. We did a lot of marketing. We did a lot of litigation work. We did um, software development. I founded the political division did a lot of time sharing, um, And then I really couldn't find anybody that was actually happy in business, which included me. All of us were trying to make as much money as we could and get out. And so I did that. I made as much money as I could. And I went off to train to become a Rolfer. And um, we moved into our Vanagon camper and drove around the United States while I studied. And then I ended up training as a Rolfer. And in the process of that, I became a consultant to the Rolf Institute. That led to running a Rolf Institute, taking them through a transition of about a four-year time period, and then back into private practice as a Rolfer. That led to founding a movement body of work. And then that led to training in trauma psychotherapy for, trauma psychotherapy for three years, the guy named Peter Levine. And that led to training in developmental psychotherapy with a group in Denmark for three years. Should I stop now? Just-
1: <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> that's absolutely amazing. And what you do for your clients now through Innate Strategies is really fascinating in in which you're, you know, looking to find solutions to these very, very complex, you know, both business issues and societal issues. So, you know, even for any massive organization that's dealing with complex challenges, you teach that there's actually really a simple, straightforward structure for causing results, So I'm hoping that we could talk through that structure so that our listeners can apply it to the problems occurring, you know, either in their businesses or at their jobs in the corporate world. So what's the first step in that structure?
0: Well, the first step is building relationship at the individual level. In a complex ecosystem versus a simple or complicated ecosystem, the solution sets are emergent and they arise out of the individual actors in the system. And too many times we try to apply a hierarchical or top-down approach to solving complex problems, and that doesn't fly. The, the actors in the system have too much freedom to adapt. So the first thing I do is connect with, um, imagine a 360-degree set of individuals who represent the system as a whole. And I really, truly want to understand what they're trying to cause in the system and what's required in order for them to be successful. And then as they share that, I go away and I model their worldview because we all have different mental models about how the world works or how we think the world needs to work in order for us to be successful or for what we want to create to come true. And I reflect that back to them and say, so do I understand what you're trying to accomplish and do I understand how you believe that comes about? And in that process, people feel seen, heard, understood, appreciated, and included. And that really calms them down a lot from typically their, sort of, their reactive relationship with the ecosystem. Like, oh, people aren't understanding what I'm trying to say, or I'm going to get excluded from the decision-making process, or this, this body of constituents that I care about are going to be harmed in some way. And in that process, I add value to them. And in the process of adding value to how they think, because now they can see their work as a system as opposed to just a list of things they do, that builds trust and that trust I can then port into the next phase of work, uh, which is moving into what's called a subgroup level.
1: I'm curious, you know, when you are looking to map out this worldview, you know, is there typically agreement from you know everyone you're working with at an organization on what that looks like, or is there an element of having to balance all of these different points of view?
0: That's a lovely question. And the reason it's so lovely is I have been brought into organizations where the leader of the organization says, or into ecosystems, where the leader of the sponsoring organization says, I understand you're really good at movement building. Um, I want you to to build a network that will support these seven policy initiatives we're going to bring before the legislature next fall. And I'm like, well, I'm so sorry. It really doesn't work that way. (laughs) We'll assemble a set of stakeholders from your ecosystem. We'll see what they say needs to happen but that'll arise from them. And I can't guarantee you what that will be. I can promise you that every time I've ever done this in the past, what they come up with will include and uh, and exceed your expectations. And every single time what they've come up with, we've gone back and checked. Okay, so what they come up with, did it cover all the things you want to get covered? And it does. So this, this reliance on... I don't know if it's, you know, Zerwicky's wisdom of the crowds or whatever you want to call it, but this reliance on mining reality and mining the individuals that have the greatest relationship with reality to come up with solution sets has consistently demonstrated our ability to, to really understand and respond to an eco- a complex ecosystem. It makes them very, very human. Did that help?
1: It absolutely does. And so, once you have you know found that agreement on on what reality looks like in this organization, you know what that worldview is, how do you then take that a step deeper to understand what's causing it and and thus what's causing the problems?
0: Sure. So, um, I'll back up one step. When I have all those individual maps, imagine I have like 30 of these individual perspectives. Then I have to sit down and integrate those. And so imagine I scatter them out all over the floor and I ask myself, okay, all of these different perspectives actually do have to fit together in physical reality. And they actually do. They're working in physical reality with one another now. When they fit together, how do they fit together? Which perspectives or which set of actors bump into each other? Which ones are naturally aligned? Where are their conflicts? And how do we resolve those conflicts over time? When I've been interviewing those individuals, typically there are themes that emerge, like someone who's working in, in the domain of economic development might actually care about the environment, or someone that's working in the environment might actually be doing building a wind farm because they want to make money. So where they are in the system doesn't necessarily line up with what their passion is. So the first step before coming up with a solution set is to bring them together in those affinity groups. And have them realize this really important thing that came out of system centered group psychotherapy, which was another domain of study for me that we didn't talk about when I was running through my background. But the key there, according to Ivana Agatharian, the woman who founded that domain, you know, we'll never get a diverse group of individuals to have an authentic conversation because they're too concerned about being seen, heard, understood, appreciated, and included. She says this really interesting thing if the first discriminate and understand, The differences among the apparently similar before we can appreciate and integrate the similarities among the apparently different. So, what that means is I have to bring people together in affinity groups. Like when the first time I did this, the process had blown up and I was brought in to try to put it back together again. So, I couldn't bring the environmentalists into the room with the utility executive at the same time, the charge was too great. But I could bring all the environmentalists together and I could bring all the utility and regulator people together. So when I brought the environmentalists together, the first five or 10 minutes, it was great. They were all patting each other on the back and smiling and laughing and saying, we get to do this without the legislators or the regulators or whatever. But within about 10 minutes, it was a bit of a catfight. It was like, no, it's the air. No, it's the trees. No, it's the water. No, it's the soils. And you could see they all had pretty strong opinions about how the environment needed to be handled. But luckily the charge wasn't so great that it blew the container we were able to work them through to a common goal and a common understanding of how that goal was doing over time and a common understanding of what had to happen to that goal in what type time frame in order for that goal to survive. From that perspective, we were able to have them then look at the integrated map. once they had a charge in their body, once they were emotionally peaked, once they had a shared understanding of, of how the system was treating their goal from that place, they could more accurately, more rigorously, more more fully explore the map. And once the map is explored by these different groups, utilities and the environmentalists and the policymakers and the economics people, then we've got a solid map that's been run through about four or five times by four or five different groups. So we've had about six people look at this map. Once the map is solid, then we can run a series of analyses on it. So we look at we use a piece of software, called a cross-impact matrix analysis that is used by the intelligence services to identify nodes of high opportunity and networks of great uncertainty. We look at system archetypes like tragedy of the commons or success to the successful or growth and underinvestment. We look at how the different resources are trending in the system. And by that, I mean, if a resource is at a level of five on a scale of one to 10, what's important to know is that on a five on the way up or a five on the way down? Because if it's on the way up, then we just tweak it. If it's on the way down, we have to flip it. So things like that we look at, and we come up then with this. Imagine you're picking up a system and you're looking at it, you know, through through one lens and then flipping at it looking at another and then another. And pretty soon you say, you know, no matter how we looked at this system, this one variable or these three variables showed up in every single view. And then these 10 variables showed up in four out of the five, and then these 20 and three out of the five. And so then you get this pile of resources that have varying degree of significance in the system, and that serves as kind of the portfolio that just informs decision-making. And then you turn to the decision-makers, the, the people in the room that you mapped, and you ask them, okay, so what do you think the levers are in the system? And they come up typically, almost invariably, with like no more than five to seven things that they believe if we can focus on these 5 to 7 we'll be able to turn the system in the direction it needs to go. So
1: when you have all of these people with varying priorities and you know varying perspectives, how do you kind of cut through the noise to you know figure out what actions, you know what levers are going to have the greatest impact, you know for the common goal? Well
0: the the beauty of it is that almost, so first of all, everything on that systems map is important. Okay. So, so we need to know that we're not leaving anybody out. There's like, oh, you know, some, some people begin and think, oh my God, if you're going to come up with a solution, will it include me? It's back to that. Am I going to be included and appreciated and understood and all of that? And it's like saying, well, um, you know, the, the heart is most important and then comes the brain. And by the way, please don't cut off my big toe because I'll fall over when I try to walk. It's not like we can leave anything behind. Because the map is laid out using principles from system dynamics and systems thinking, there is literally a math to it. And the reason for walking everybody through it is that we agree this is the math of our system, really, the the physical reality of what causes what. So, we're we're all, all aligned about the structure of reality. And then we're aligned about the analyses because I take them all through the analyses. And then we you know, I don't ever mention the word consensus, like we've got to come to consensus, but consensus emerges out of the process. It's really beautiful. I don't think I've ever used the word consensus, but we always come out aligned around what those five to seven levers are. And, and, and then the, the other beauty is that, you know, Ken Wilber says this thing that I really long appreciated along with many things he said, but one of them, he says, you know, I've never met anyone who's so stupid that there's not something right in what they say. There's not some truth in what they're saying, you know, like, and, and I think the same applies here. Not that people are so stupid at all, but most of the time, what people want does have a role. It's a matter of the sequencing. Like, I'll be advocating for my most important thing first, because I don't, you know, God, you can't forget this thing. But when I see it in this, out of that great big map, we take those levers and we extract what we call the strategy map, which is a distillation of the 150 or so things in the map down to about 10 or 15. And then we sequence it. Because that's what you see is like, oh, the thing you care about, it's totally important, but it's third. You need three months to build this resource and then a year to build that second resource, and then your thing will be ready. And oh, by the way, there are things you need to start doing now to make sure that's ready you know, a year and three months from now. So when people see that, they're like, oh, you get it. You you get that what I'm doing is important. You get that that is a lever. And I get that it fits into a sequence of things. So there's so many things we do in an iterative fashion to bring everyone along, that by the time we get there, unless someone is a bully, and there are bullies in systems, and we can talk about that separately and how you deal with bullies, which is fascinating, but unless they're just stuck on their ideology, not reality, we emerge out of this with consensus, just kind of by quote-unquote accident.
1: Well, and I'd love to kind of tie this into reality with an example so that people can see how this plays out. And I know that you once shared your strategic vision with a potential client only to be told that your plan was, quote, impossible. So (laughs) what was that business trying to do and and why did the the solution seem so far-fetched for the C-suite?
0: Because that's how I describe my work. When people ask me what I do, you know, you want to come up with one of those, you know, your elevator pitch or your catch, your hook or whatever. And I say, well, I solve problems that most leaders think are impossible to solve. And where that came from was in working with HP on their, well, I wasn't working with them yet, but HP came to me about trying to triple the output of their global notebook supply chain. And HP at the time, and I think they still are, was the number one notebook supplier in the world. And they were anticipating a threefold increase in sales. And the supply chain was trying to figure that out. So the chief of staff got on the phone with me, and we got into a conversation. And I said, well, what have you tried so far? And he said, well, we sent out a request to the field telling them we have to triple it. And I said, how'd that go? And he said, well, we got back 127 requests and initiatives. And I'm like, whoa. And he's like, yeah, there's no way we could fund them. Let's manage them. And I said, well, where did you take that? And he said, well, we narrowed it down to 25. To and I said, well, would you bet your 401k on the 25? And he said, hell no. That was like, who was the loudest? Who had the most budget? Who had the most political pull? You know, who was the squeakiest wheel? La, da, 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 da. And I said, well, what if we could get that down to five to seven, that everybody in the room agrees if we do these five to seven, we can achieve tripling of the supply chain. And he said, can you do that? And I, so I explained to him how. We took, you know, it took a while to explain how we did it. So he went back to the team and they all said yes. And so then he went to the head of the supply chain a guy named Ike Harris, and it came back that, you know, I'm so sorry, Ike says that's impossible. Nobody can add that much value in that tight of time frame. And I said, fine. And it just spontaneously arose for me to say, fine, tell him I'll do it for free. Pay me only if I succeed. And there was this long pause on the other end of the line. And they, uh, David said, that's a pretty bold offer. And I said, well, it should be. If I believe I can do this, I should put my money where my mouth is. So, so they said, okay. And a month later, we got paid. And uh, and everybody in the room agreed there were seven things that we needed to focus on. If we focused on those, then we'd be successful. So a few weeks later, after that, David called me back and said, "You know, you should see the they had a headquarters in Houston and a headquarters in Shanghai." And they said, "You should see the walls and halls here. The map is up. No one had ever seen the supply chain before. They couldn't. They all saw their part, but they couldn't understand. Like, how do I hook up? You know, with my office in Houston? How does it hook up with the the, the original um, equipment manufacturers in?" Shanghai? And how does that hook up with the design teams back here in Houston? And they just couldn't visualize it. And so this map was up on the halls and and walls throughout the facilities, helping people make decisions, helping them understand who their relationships needed to be with in order to understand their roles. It was used to recruit people into the supply chain from other parts of HP as like, hey, we're way ahead of the game. We understand how our world works. And so it it was a highly successful project.
1: Was there any doubt in your mind? I mean, when you offered to do that project for free, were you certain, you know, I know I'm going to get paid, this is going to work, or was it
0: a risk? You know, it was a risk, and I always have doubt. I always have doubt, and I think that's a healthy thing. There was a great, and I wish I could remember his name right now, there was a head of a French pharmaceutical company who said something like this, I'm going to butcher it a bit, but he said, leadership is the act of making a promise you know needs to be made, And then having to change in order to keep it. And that's how I handle almost all of my engagements. And it keeps me honest. It keeps me open. It it keeps me humble. Because when I did this with Lockheed around the Navy subfleet at one point, they said, I don't see how you're going to do this. And I said, I don't either. But I know somebody's got to do it. And I don't know anybody better to get their head around it than you all. And that's inarguable. It's got to happen. And if anybody's going to do it, it's you. And so let's go. And I do have a methodology that I feel confident in the methodology. I'm always worried that it's not going to turn out. But uh, I don't think that's a paranoia or a dysfunctional worry. It's just a healthy, like, honesty. It's a healthy curiosity. And it's a healthy commitment to doing the very best I can for people.
1: I know in organizations, large and small, when you're trying to, you know, see through all of the different possibilities and find, you know, what are those five, six, seven things that are really going to move the needle, one of the challenges is implementing, you know, those systems and then, you know, seeing them fall by the wayside weeks or months later. So, how can we set ourselves up for success and ensure that what we're doing is going to be sustainable and will really stick for the long term?
0: I'm more alive in my body now that you asked that question than I was a moment ago, because that is the trip. And I think that's the one thing that this work embodies that system dynamics in general doesn't. System dynamics has been around since the 50s, if not before. And Jay Forster really nailed it in the field with his books like Urban Dynamics and, and other things like that. And it's been a brilliant, beautiful body of work, but it's not taken off. People haven't really picked it up. And I think it's because they've forgotten or it's just, it didn't really include, at least not in most of the literature, the human element. And what I mean by the human element is the ability to come up with the systemic solution in such a way that you bring every single individual in the process along with it, and not just along with it cognitively, but emotionally. So, I had this grid that came up when I was teaching a class in Atlanta years ago where, you know, where we're building two things at six organic levels. So we're building relationship, the human side, the psychological side for my psychological training, and we're building clarity, the system dynamics and complexity side at these six organic levels. So at the level of the self, at the level of another, at the level of a team, an organization, Constituency or a marketplace and the level of an ecosystem, whether it's a natural social ecosystem. So, if you build relationship and clarity at the level of the self, that's the first time that leadership emerges. Like, you shouldn't follow me if I'm not in a relationship with myself and if I'm not clear. You'd be a fool to follow me. That does happen, but <laughs> you'd be a fool to follow me. <laughs> and then at the level of the team, uh, sorry, with another, like you and I right now, trust emerges. At the level of a team, innovation. At the level of an organization, execution at the level of the network or the marketplace or the constituency, scalability, and at the level of the ecosystem, sustainability. So if you look at that list of those six qualities that emerge when you build relationship and clarity really thoughtfully, that's a killer change agent list. Uh, Leadership, trust, innovation, execution, scalability, and sustainability. I mean, that's like the the holy grail of what we sought when I was in OD and cultural change and, and all that sort of stuff. But because you start at the level of the individual and you build that again and again and again, you're reinforcing that it's like a helix. It's like a a spiral. It's like you, you, you revisit the individual at the team level and at the organizational level. So by the time you get to the end, people literally have embedded in their nervous systems the validity of this and that they're included and that what they care about can only happen if this whole thing, if this whole enterprise succeeds. So when you set that up, now you've got yourself some runway, some emotional and intellectual runway with the individuals involved. And then the important thing is to make sure that that runway pays off. And so the, the first thing we do, we do uh, once you've got the leverage points identified, then we do a strategy offsite. And in that strategy offsite, people self-assign themselves to levers. We want them to go where their energy is. And once they're self-assigned to a lever, then the group comes up with a goal for that lever and the goal has to be measurable and time-specific so that it's real. And once they come up with a measurable time-specific goal, then each individual has to come up with at least three strategies for achieving that goal. And the reason for three is you don't want them saying, oh, 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 the answer is my thing. The thing I've done for the last 20 years, that's the answer. No, 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 you have to come up with three. And then they settle on one. And then they work out, okay, then what are the different phases of the strategy and the different steps to be taken and the different roles to fill those steps. And at the end of all that, you say, are you willing to take one more step? And that one more step is in stepping into to these 90-day cycles of work. And the reason for 90-day cycles of work is people will commit to 90 days. The foundations will fund 90 days. They might not fund three years, but they'll fund 90 days. And in those 90 days, then you have to be sure that you establish different ways of working, ways that are not hierarchical, ways that align more with how self-organizing networks work. So a, a quick example of that would be the, uh, there's a, a video on, you can Google something called voids, B-O-I-D-S which is kind of a play on birds. And you may have seen it on the internet where there are these, this guy, a complexity theorist, I forget Chris's last name, but he developed this. He was curious, like, how do birds flock? And he realized there's simply four rules. The rules are separation, don't bang my wings. Cohesion, you know, don't get so far that we're not a flock. Alignment, follow the heading of the three birds in your field. View and avoidance, don't hit a rock or a tree or a building or something like that. And when you program those little agents with that, they flock. And the same thing is true for us as humans. I mean, you know, like if you look, I think you have looked at my website and you know about my principles about people are trying to do the right things. It's just not always straightforward in a complex system. We're designed to collaborate and succeed. I really believe that, or I choose to believe that. And it's my experience. So we have to figure out, and it's entirely possible to figure out, and we have successfully done it, create ways for us to sort of flock as a network to be able to achieve a goal. So it's important that you get that runway and then of trust and those things. And then, then you actually, then inside of that runway, you succeed so that people want to take the next step and the next step and the next step. And we did this in Vermont, the farm to school system. They agreed to a 90-day project. At the end of the 90 days, they submitted their proposals to the Vermont Community Foundation. The Vermont Community Foundation said, this is the most comprehensive and cohesive set of proposals we've ever received. We're going to fund them all. And we're going to fund Betsy Rosenbluth, who's helping to shepherd this network for 18 months. And then some period of time later, the foundation came back and said, you're the most successful project in our portfolio. Here's a quarter of a million dollars. Tell us what you're going to do with it, and it's yours. And then the next thing that happened was the state then was entertaining, giving them a grant of $400,000. So this way of working allows people in, it's, it's like it has a ton of integrity because we're not asking you, we're asking you to try something new. And if you like it, then do more. And if you like it, then do more. And it just builds like that.
1: Well this individual element that you're talking about is you know obviously critical and so you know, for anyone who's listening, who you know is working in a job, you know, on a team, what do you do when there's someone in your system that isn't cooperating? You mentioned bullies in a system. When you do have, you know, individuals who aren't, you know, maybe willing to change or you willing to kind of shift their their thinking uh, and the way that they approach the system, how do you deal with that?
0: Well, you actually hold them close. And I don't mean like hold your enemies close and you're you're like your friends close, your enemies closer. It's not like that. It's like like with my son, like when he misbehaves, instead of what is tempting to do, which is to distance him and get upset with him, I actually pull him close and and I hold him close and I connect with him. So when I run across someone who disagrees with our approach, it it just happened the other day on a project. I'm working on the North Bay Fire Recovery uh, in Sonoma County after all those devastating fires last year. There was a guy who was all crusty and nasty and, you know, didn't want to be interviewed and all of that. And I just really went deep with him. I really want to understand what are you trying to cause and what's really required to be successful. And at one point in the interview, he said, oh, you're not just another pretty boy consultant. You ask a really smart question, you know? And so it's like, even in the interview, we have to be adding value. We have to be adding value. And then when I brought his map back to him, he was blown away. He was like, my God, you actually understand that in order for a developer, because he was, he was in the construction world, so in order for a developer to relocate from Oakland to Santa Rosa to build houses, this is how the business model has to be structured to get them economies of scale, or they can't afford to come here. So, once it, you know, like say, if you're adding value, then the resistance you got was largely because people are just, they're actually, they're closet optimists. They're cynical. Because they care so much and they're sick and tired of being frustrated, so if you can help them get out of that and bring that out of the closet and make it really crystal clear to other people the value they're trying to bring that they'll they'll he's now one of my best buddies he's like we, we joke around now and oh and he, and, he, and when he said the thing about you're not just another pretty boy consultant after we got through that conversation I said and by the way, I don't want you to put that pretty boy thing aside what makes you think I'm not pretty and so he just <laughs> You know you just started dying laughing and yeah, and so I, I nine times out of ten those people become one of my strongest supporters now the one time out of ten they're not they're a bully, and they've got an agenda and they're trying to run their agenda through their group and they're and I had one in a project one of the first of these kind of projects that was a bully, and the only reason he was in the room was he was invited because if you didn't invite him, he would hurt you because he had political connections and things like that, and he would try to sabotage your funding requests or your your legislative requests or whatever. And so he continued to try to disrupt the process throughout the, uh, what was it? Nine, yeah, the nine months of the process. And there finally came a point in the group when we were all together, not just the subgroups, but the whole group was together. And he said another one of his disruptive comments and the whole room, Dorothy literally turned and looked at him. And then they all went right back to their conversation as if he hadn't said a word. (laughs) And all of a sudden, I don't know if you've studied ethology or Franz de Waal's work about when a member of the troop is banished or is, you know, shunned. They go into all these appeasement behaviors. You know, they start they, they bring people food, they scratch their back, they pick fleas or whatever they mites or whatever they chimpanzees have. This guy started offering people, would kind of you a cup of tea. Would you like this pillow? Oh, here, take my chair. All of a sudden he was doing all of this appeasement behavior because he felt how the group pushed him out. And what I learned from that was, it's not up to me to correct his behavior because one-on-one, he is so much better at being mean than I am. Thank goodness that I'm not going to be mean. But the group can totally turn him. We have that in our limbic system, in our mammalian brain. We have this desire to belong. And if the group gets strong enough, they will turn the bully or they will eject the bully because the logic of what we've done is so rock solid and their emotional connection to that because it's built on what they care about is so strong that the group finally gets strong enough cohesively and collectively that they can handle a bully. You don't have to.
1: Do you ever run into a situation where the bully though is the decision maker or the leader of the group? How would you you approach a
0: situation like that? That's a confrontation with the decision maker. And it's not a public confrontation with the decision maker, but it is a reality-based and factual confrontation with the decision maker. I typically don't get hired by those kind of people. Because when I tell them, no, I can't deliver exactly what you want, and I'm not sure how we're going to get there. And they're like, oh, you know, like, well, I want someone who can promise me my outcome. So I don't, typically, I have encountered them in one project. Uh, I wasn't the leader of the project. I was brought in for my systems mapping skill. And though, in that case, though, getting the group strong did have an impact on that leader because that leader was on the line for being successful with one of the leading corporations on the planet. And when they realized the impact they were having on the success of the project, which meant their reputation and even their job, they dampened their behavior. I don't think it changed anything. There was no like, I don't, I didn't get the sense there was any like come to Jesus moment or fundamental change, but there was a behavioral modification. But I typically don't get brought into those situations where they're just, I'm scanning and scanning and scanning. Well, actually, there was one other case where there was a really big bullying system and they, but the logic of what I had to offer was irrefutable. The logic of the process is irrefutable and they weren't able to overcome that. Uh, and then in some cases, they just did it anyway, when they, even when they disagreed until the group got strong.
1: Right. When you're providing so much value that you know it's, it's obvious to anyone who's looking at it, it's hard to, hard to refute that. Well, when it comes to doing good, I know that you've helped nonprofits, social change organizations, even entire societies to address some of the most challenging problems of our time. So which of those projects really stands out to you the most looking back?
0: The one that actually touches me the most uh, to this day uh, was with Guatemala. We, a friend of mine, Jim Richie Dunham, and I had done a pro bono project for Care Latin America. And that led to our conclusion in that pro bono project of of saying to them, well, you guys are the perfect, you know, organization to broker the exchange of, you know, between funders and service providers in Guatemala because you understand the fundamental dynamics of poverty. And they said, the what? (laughs) we said, the fundamental dynamics of poverty. And they're like, we don't know what you're talking about. And. So they have been working in Guatemala for at least 20 years, doing better and better projects, hiring smarter and smarter people, raising more and more money, but poverty and social injustice were getting worse and worse and worse over time. And that's like, you know, you're in your car, you're pressing down on the gas, the engine's running, but it's slowing down and you smell smoke. It's like, uh-oh, something's really wrong with this. You know, there's something systemically wrong. So Jim and I went in to to map the fundamental dynamics of poverty, and in that process, we had to interview people like uh, on one end of the spectrum, former guerrilla leaders and the Kachin and, and mum peoples, and on the other end, the leaders in the military and the intelligence services, the economics minister and the university students, the Mayan Shamans and the Catholic priests. And you know, like just imagine again one of those three hundred and sixty-degree snapshots of the ecosystem. And there was a really telling moment for me in that that's that's still with me today and it still and helps guide the principles that I put up on my website where we had to go interview the, uh, a leader in the intelligence services, and we literally had to go through, I don't know, it was like four or five or six airlocks. There were these glass-enclosed cages or boxes where a guy with a machine gun on one side and a guy with an AK-47 on the other side would let you into the box. They'd close the doors and then let you out of the box, you know, and then and we went up through these floors to the top of the building and it's pretty freaky because like, you're knowing like, well, for 40 years, there, this, there was a lot of disappearing and a lot of torturing and a lot of all these things. And so, it was just, you know, you, I had a lot of judgments. And so, then I, when I sat down in front of this leader in the intelligence services, it suddenly hit me that, oh my God, if there's anybody in the world that can recognize insincerity or inauthenticity, it's this guy. Like, he's trained his whole life to recognize that. You know, like, he interrogates people. So if I really want to understand like his highest and best purpose, I kind of have to fall in love with him for the next 60 minutes. I can unlove him in, you know, 61 minutes, but I have to deeply really care about what he's trying to, you know, assume positive intent and, and really come to understanding or he's not going to tell me the truth. And I can't go back to the cachet and the mum people and the, the other, you know, significant constituents who are trying to do the right thing and tell them the truth. And it turned into a really rich, insightful interview that really helped us understand the challenges facing any intelligence system as they try to inform politically motivated president about what's really going on in physical reality. And then the president ignores that and causes a massacre of 300 people on a landowner's estate who's trying to illegally evict people because he's trying to lease his land out to someone else in violation of his covenant with his tenant farmers. And these people get killed. So that taught me to, like, look at everybody, to, 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 to sense into everybody I talked to from this place of deep caring. The Guatemalan people, when, when, as I went through that, you know, there was a point where I said, I told them, you know, you've, when we do that, like, what's happening to your goal over time thing that I talked about earlier, you know, and typically it's going down, 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 or I wouldn't be in the room. And then typically it's going to go into the dirt if nothing changes. There's an opposing line that has to climb up out of that really quickly in order to save the goal, and so the what I said to the to the room of leaders from care was you have to embody these two these two poles the the downward one you know of disaster and the upward one of optimism, and all the people in the room that have been with care for. You know, eight years or more were the cynics, and all the ones that are three years or less were the idealists. And it's like, well, idealism and cynicism isn't going to solve this. You have to literally internalize in your nervous system that gap because out of that tension will arise the, the solution, the innovation, the energy for innovating. And they said, well, and I said, so here's how you need to embody that. And they said, well, can you give us an example? And I, so I turned to Ben this guerrilla leader who had been all over me in the beginning about what's a rich white boy like you from San Francisco doing coming down here at Guatemala to talk to us about poverty and social injustice. I said, Ben you need to take me out in the interior and you need to make me cry because I have to have inside of me the same emotional energy that you have if I have any hope of designing in a way that supports you. And he did. So put me in the back of a land cruiser along with Jim and drove me around for five days until I wept. And then he brought me back. And that gave me what I needed to be able to truly design for them. So yeah, that was probably the most viscerally meaningful project I was ever engaged in, but right down on the ground you know, with poverty and poverty with people who so deeply cared about their traditional ways, about the earth, about their spiritual relationships, about their community that they would go off to college in the United States and wanting to come back and contribute to their community. Yeah, I I, I learned it a, a lot.
1: So what what did the, I guess, the system coming out of that research look like you know, when it came to addressing the systemic poverty in Guatemala? What were some of those levers that you identified that could affect positive change?
0: Again, a great question because... Um, there were a couple of things that came out of that. One, when we brought everybody into the room to take a look at the map, you know, these, these 30 odd people that we'd interviewed from all of these different perspectives, the peace accords and the health ministry and the educational system. And uh, when we brought them all together and walked them through the map, or actually the people from care walked them through the map, we, cause we couldn't leave there without them owning the map. So they walked through the map. Suddenly, they were able to see that most of their conflicts were structural. They weren't personal. And An example would be like, "Oh, so you folks over in the president's office, you don't realize that when you do a political favor for the president's biggest political supporter, that when you grant them a tax subsidy or I mean, a subsidy or a tax break or something like that, that the road that would have gotten our corn to market from our little village doesn't get built three years from now. Like it's not, it's not done." And we can't get our corn to market and our economy collapses. You're not trying to destroy our way of life or eliminate my people, or you're just satisfying the goal that you're aware of without understanding what the impact it has across the system. And there were several examples of that. And so, once they realized that it was a structural issue, then they began to form networks to keep each other informed. So, for example, the I forget Freddie's last name, but he was a colonel in the Air Force, and he ran the, the, the military strategic unit for Guatemala Military. He began to invite the former guerrilla leaders to his uh, monthly briefing sessions to keep them apprised of the security issues facing Guatemala, because now their security issues were external, not internal any longer, now that the peace accords had been signed and, and all of that. The health minister set up a network database where before, people went out and worked in different geographies around different issues, and they wouldn't even know they were in the same community together. So, he created a database where you could see, like, you know, what organization is in what geography doing what kind of a project, and who's the contact, and what's the contact information. You could go to this database if you were doing an agricultural project, and there needed to be an educational element, you know, to inform people about how to work in this way in a more, in a more scalable way. You could hook up with the educator you know, people and do that. So they began to form these networks, basically, which is how you respond in complex adaptive systems uh, is through self-organizing networks versus hierarchies because hierarchies can't scale at the rate and, and they bottleneck information and action rather than facilitate it. They began to form these kind of networks. So that was sort of one outcome of it. Another outcome of it was the realization that the, and this the, 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 the levers that came out, and I'm not sure I can remember them all right now, But it was a very small set of, again, it was like six or seven uh, variables out of the whole map, and at the heart of it was the social fabric of the indigenous peoples, which represented 70% of the population and represented the bulk of the poor in in the system, of the and Mum peoples. The social fabric was at the heart of it, but the beginning of the social fabric was the unique Mayan identity. you know, the felt sense of a Mayan identity. And what was fascinating was that the Mayans were trying to live in their traditional ways, their earth-keeping ways, their spirit-keeping ways, and the Guatemalan government stood out hierarchically to define Guatemalan identity, just to define Mayan identity. And it's like, no, 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 that's not your job, because in Guatemala there was this thing like you couldn't carry the Virgin Mary in the parade Unless you could prove your lineage seven generations back did not contain any Mayan blood. And this was back at the time that we were doing this. So it was a, a, you know, almost like a caste system. So to have the Guatemalan government, which was largely comprised of the elites, define Mayan identity was like so off base that it's not even funny. So the key was identify your Mayan identity and then create the social institutions based on that Mayan identity. Let those social institutions determine your initial economic opportunities, which, by the way, wasn't making Jordash jeans or Levi's jeans in a factory. That's not Mayan by nature. That economic opportunity lead to aligned Mayan economic opportunities and allow that to create an economic self-determination. And then bring those resources back to reinforce both the social fabric and the sense of Mayan identity, and then just pump. It's just like a pump like a virtuous cycle of activity. So that's roughly how I remember that very small set. Once the, the leaders we were working with got that, it was like an epiphany for them. And it totally transformed how they viewed their work with care. It was much more like it had a lineage, it had depth, it had, there were places they could go to discover more about that and to, and to, and to evolve that beyond, you know, uh, its origins. Does that help? Is that like, sufficient? It
1: does. It does. Complete. You know, I
0: could talk forever about it. But
1: <laughs> well, it's, it's an amazing project. And I know that, you know, in addition to doing these consulting projects that really are having direct impact on issues of the kind of magnitude like systemic poverty, you also are the board chair for multiple nonprofits yourself. So could you tell us about those organizations and how you got involved?
0: Sure. And there are two, actually. So I'm chairman of the board of International Rivers. International Rivers is, have been in existence for 30 years. It won the MacArthur Award for most innovative organization a few years ago. We hired recently a rock star uh, executive director, Kate Horner. And what International Rivers does is we, we seek to protect the, the last free flowing rivers because we see rivers as the lifeblood of the planet and so many of the essential rivers in the world have been dammed and there are serious problems with damming rivers. There are serious financial problems because there are almost, I don't think that we've run across any dam that has kept its financial promise about the jobs it would create, the revenue it would create. The cost overruns are typically 3x what the initial projections are. The degrees of corruption in dam building are unbelievable in terms of the bribes and the payoffs not only after the dam is built but then later on about how the dam is actually run. There and there's you know there's a lot of research on mega projects and the failure rate of mega projects and dams are one of those mega projects that have very high failure rates. The displacement they visit on the indigenous populations that rely on the rivers is just heartbreaking. It forces those people into the cities. And when they go to the cities, there are typically no jobs, not sufficient housing, so it increases poverty, Um, and with all of the attendant things that go with poverty. And there are so many more environmentally, socially, and economically more sane options than building dams. Um, The ability to create distributed generation networks if it's utilities that you're concerned about, micro dams as a way of mitigating floods, restoring and maintaining wetlands as ways to absorb. Excess runoff or forests, which is a which is a big way to protect us from runoffs, so there are so many smarter alternatives to dams um, it's just that the, the big money and the big politic that is available in dams and the support from major global funders like the IMF and others has historically attracted uh, hierarchical players and so we set out to, and the recent dam collapsed just what, last week in Laos, where Thousands of people were, homes were destroyed, hundreds were, and we don't know how many yet were killed. Even some of our partners in Lyle's perished in those, in those floods. Even here in California, you know, last, last summer, uh, I believe it was last summer, we had this, you know, the impending collapse of a dam in Northern California that would have wiped out thousands of homes. So they're, they're not good investments. <laughs> so that's, we should have to protect that. The other group that I'm chairman of the board of is Bioneers, and Bioneers uh, has a conference every year in San Rafael. If you've not been, I highly recommend going because we present like leading-edge solutions that come out of nature for solving nature's problems. So, like Janine Binyas' group, Biomimicry, has presented there several times about how do we understand hydrodynamics from the point of view of fish or, or microorganisms that live in the ocean and how they handle fluid dynamics? there's a guy and forgive me for forgetting his name who looks at mycology that is the growing of fungus and and mushrooms and things like that for things like remediating superfund sites you know one of his experiments was the EPA held a contest and they had all these different people come in and like who can remediate you know a sample patch of toxic waste the cheapest and the fastest and so these people came out some were you know like bulldozing dirt and hauling it off in trucks some were applying other kind of chemicals and uh, this guy <laughs> as i understand it he scattered a bunch of spores on this area, covered it with a black plastic tarp. I think he may have wetted it, covered it with a black plastic tarp and like came back in a month or whatever it was. And the, and the mushrooms that absorb the toxins out of the soil. You know, it's like incredibly you know, economical and environmentally friendly, just don't eat the mushrooms you know, unless you want some serious hallucinations or whatever. <laughs> so it's, it's those kinds of ideas that get brought in. They're ideas in the domain of environmentalism, social justice, uh, economic equity, different kinds of political and decision-making systems. There's a big indigenous component to it to bring their wisdom to bear. It's a it's an amazing organization as well. Um, and it's been around for, I think, again, like, forgive me, I should know as his chairman, but at least 20 years. Founded by Kenny Azabel, you know, Simons. It's a really inspiring thing to go through yeah. now.
1: Well, Scott, thank you so much for everything that you've shared with us today. Unfortunately, we are running out of time, so I'd like to move into what I call the impact round. So I'm gonna ask you a series of questions and I'd like for you to just respond with the first answer that pops into your head. You ready?
0: Happy yeah.
1: All right, so who has been the most impactful person in your journey to do well and achieve financial success?
0: You know, I don't have, my I guess it would be someone almost like a Napoleon Hill or people in the, and I'm reluctant to say that because my, my path to financial success, has been a challenging one because I've gone up and down. You know, when I left Arthur Anderson to go to the nature conservancy, I took a pay cut. When I stopped the nature conservancy to to go into martial art, I took a pay cut. When I left my consulting job to become a rolfer, I took a pay cut. So it's been this up and down road. So I think there's almost something here. Okay, so this, so this would be the answer. The answer is, it's almost like Buddha or Christ. And I know that sounds totally strange, but let me tell you why. That I currently let my clients set the rate for what I get paid. I send them a spreadsheet with all the tasks and how much time it's going to take me and a range of what I've typically been paid. And I say, you set the rate, I'll do the work. And that's an act of service. That's an act of love. That's, and it builds tremendous trust and it actually calls out in them their deepest humanity about being right and fair, which is what I think people want to do, but they're not often, they're, they're not trusted enough to do that. So I would have to say it's it's choosing to believe that people are fundamentally good and then designing an economic system that feeds off of that or facilitates that. And as I say that, that sounds true.
1: Yeah. That such, feels true. It's such a unique answer and I completely understand what you're saying. That's very powerful. Most people, they, they just don't have the trust to, you know, Put their paycheck in the hands of their clients, but you're right. You know, most people they want to, they want to compensate you for the work that you're doing and the value that you're providing. And so, you know, if you can just trust people a little bit deeper and you know believe in the good of of everyone you're working with, that uh, that can be very rewarding. It sounds like.
0: I was abused one time, but it was by a trust funder. So, uh, but other than that, it's been great. <laughs>
1: So Scott, who has been the most impactful person in feeding your drive to do good and make an impact?
0: It's the people that I work with, actually. I started to say Christ and Buddha and Muhammad and, you know, again, and the Course in Miracles and the Way of Mastery and Tole's Now and Byron Katie and about, you know, like being just being present to people's deepest yearnings, to people's deepest carings and, and to cut through their cynicism or even their idealism, you know, and, and to get to like, to get to something heartfelt. And when I can touch that, that can, as you can tell probably from my tone of voice and my pace now, how it's shifted, that feeds me. That inspires me. Yeah. I say that people, like when I was a trauma psychotherapist, oh my God, people coming, like even psychotics showing up that were broken from what had been done to them and having them watch them unravel. Things like torture and gunshots and, you know, abuse and fiery plane crashes and have them unwind that and then have their true humanity arise up out of that and then champion that such that they're stronger because of their trauma than they were before. Oh my God. Like knowing that that is what is inside of us. That's, I would say it's, it's my clients that move me the most. Yeah.
1: And when you're having a bad day or you find yourself in a negative headspace, <laughs> you know, what do you do to get yourself out of that funk?
0: I'm really careful never to fall in the ditch, just never to get into that funk. So I begin every morning with my own set of prayer. And if I take the time, meditation. But I sit out, I live and work on a sailboat in Sausalito. So that's one way that I make sure that I'm in good shape. I take good care of my body. I'm on a ketogenic diet. I do super slow strength training. I compete internationally in in a, in a sport I love, and keeping my body a, a, alive and healthy is a big piece of that. And then just little practices, like when someone at the store says "Have a nice day," my response is always "I promise, it's true." You know, like I just I don't have bad days. I have challenging days. I have hard days. I have busy days, but by not allowing myself, so so for example, like with my son, I, I promised him years ago never to get angry with him because anger is an indulgence. It's like too much alcohol or too much chocolate. I could choose to indulge myself in my misery, like in destructive emotions, the Dalai Lama talks about, well, there's a, there's a section there where the Buddhists actually don't understand it when our psychologists say, well, what about the mood people are in? And they're like, moods? What are moods? And the Buddhists literally don't understand mood. You know, because it's like, and I, the way I interpret that is moods are a form of indulgence. I can indulge in self-pity. I can indulge in in criticism. I can indulge in making someone wrong. It's like, that's just, you know, like, there's so much more. I mean, we live in an incredibly abundant universe. And I mean, if you just look around at all of the material abundance, if you look at the grass trying to grow up out of the cracks on the freeway, it's like, <laughs> it's, like it's all around us. So, like, focus on what's working. You know, like. Another piece of that is like being in the presence of what you're for not what you're against. Like if I'm going down the mountain on my road, mountain bike and I go don't hit the rock don't hit the rack you know you know what happens. But if instead I'm like take the path to the left. Boom, my whole body, my whole organism wants to do that and it's a very natural organic thing. So what am I for? If I can get in the presence of what I'm for, I'm no longer anxious, I'm no longer confused, I'm no longer upset, I'm inspired.
1: I encourage everyone to back this up and listen to that again because that is so powerful what Scott just shared. If we can, you know, shift ourselves to having this abundance mindset and realizing that there really is a plethora of everything it is that we're wanting, it completely shifts the way that you show up in the world, the way that you interact with your clients, your team, the people you're working with. Um, it really changes everything. So then, Scott, what book do you find yourself recommending to people most often?
0: You're getting really personal now, aren't you? Let's see. <laughs> there are actually, I would say there are three. And again, it, they're on the spiritual end of things. I think Total is now, I go back to again and again, and Byron Katie's Loving What Is, like her, her process, uh, it, it's really, it really helped me. Now it's just kind of automatic. One that really did help me a lot that I worked with for, I don't know, 18 months or two years was one called The Way of Mastery. And it's one of those channeled kind of things. I did work with The Course in Miracles for three years, but it just beat the hell out of my ego. And, and it, it was a very I'm, I needed it. But The Way of Mastery is a much gentler one. But again, I, most of my stuff is rooted in a, in a set of spiritual beliefs. So it may not be everybody's you know, cup of tea. And there are, there are others if you want like more about complexity theory or system dynamics or ethology, but yeah.
1: Yeah, well, we will definitely link to those in the show notes. So then last one, Scott, what is the worst piece of advice you've heard related to success? And then on the flip side, what's the best piece of advice you'd give to our listeners?
0: I think some of the worst pieces of advice I've heard have come from those who have encouraged me to take care of myself in a situation to make sure I'm not getting, you know, quote unquote, screwed by a client. And yeah, and that, that then comes out of a fear-based mentality. And then that sets up my nervous system to be like largely operating out of my hindbrain, uh, which is not, that's, that's your like lizard snake, you know, reptile brain. That's not the most creative space to be in. There, was, there came a time in my career where I actually made a list, things weren't going well. I made a list of everything that I was doing. and Then I made a list of the opposite of all of that. And I started doing the opposite of all of that. And, and that first list came from books and advice and things like that that people had given me that I thought was the right thing to do. And it just was failing miserably. And I flipped it and my business took off. It's not bulletproof, but it took off. And what was the last the other question you asked? I'm sorry, what?
1: Mm-hmm. The best piece of advice related to success.
0: Really, really pay attention to the feelings that arise in you around an issue or a, a relationship or an individual. So like for example right now my felt sense of you Dorothy is I feel very alive. I feel very abundant. I feel joyous. I feel even a sense of love. You know, and paying attention to that is critically important because there are things our bodies know that we don't know. That our our conscious minds we've been trained to use our intellect not our heart or not even our you know, many of these things that I told you about way of mastery or or relationship building, or even the what are we for versus against. It's not. It's a felt sense. It's like my whole organism, every cell on my body resonates. When my, every cell on my body resonates with something or rejects something, I really need to pay attention to that. Trust myself. Trust myself, and recognize when my ego is doing it versus when my when my true self is doing it. That would be the thing I would pay. That's what I pay attention to.
1: Well, Scott, as you know, here in the show, we have what I like to call the Do Well and Do Good Challenge. And this is where I encourage our listeners who want to give back to contribute to the nonprofits that are nominated by our guests. So I know that for your episode, you're actually nominating two organizations, the two that you chair, International Rivers and Pioneers. So could you share just a few closing thoughts about those organizations and why they're so meaningful to you?
0: Yeah, they're meaningful to me because they too are rooted in what I choose to believe about what it means to be human, alive on the earth, and as a part of a lineage of people that came before me and people that will come after me, and not just people, but other other sentient beings and other, uh, other living entities. And I arose out of this web of life, and I'm trying to contribute back to this web of life, and I think these are two organizations who have at the very essence of their being the same desire
1: well everyone we will link to both of those organizations in the show notes so be sure and check there and then lastly Scott before we say goodbye where can our listeners go to learn more about you and about the work you do with innate strategies
0: well I have a couple of websites the one that's most recent is scottspan.com um, that's my most recent thinking the older thinking and the more and the older website forgive me Is innate strategies.com. Yeah, but there's there's a lot there. And, And there's also like ways to get in touch with me if people want to know more there too.
1: Perfect. Well, Scott, thank you so much for being on the show. It has been such an honor to have you.
0: Oh, it's been a delight. Thanks so much, Dorothy. I really appreciate the chance.
1: Well, everyone, that's our show. Now, before I sign off from our chat with Scott, I want to introduce any new listeners to the Do Well and Do Good Challenge. There are two ways that you can participate. So the first is if International Rivers and Bioneers really touched your heart, then I encourage you to contribute to those or any of the nonprofits nominated by our guests. And then send a screenshot of your receipt to challenge at dowellanddogood.co. Your donation will be included in our monthly tally of the tangible impact this podcast is having in making the world a better place. The second way you can participate is by voting. So each month we host a vote inside of our free Facebook community to determine which of the organizations nominated that I will donate 10% of my after-tax income to on behalf of the podcast. So we've been able to raise money for some incredible organizations. It's a ton of fun. And so I encourage you to check out the Facebook group. You can find that at dowellanddogood.co backslash Facebook. We're having so much fun in there. I'm also sharing tips, ideas, resources, and more to help you both increase your income and your impact. So I'll see you inside the group. Thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in next week.